0: And welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute, housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian Gurman, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We are cruising through the book of Revelation. On the docket today is chapter 19, although as you can probably see in the title there of the podcast, I'm going to include just a few remarks on chapter 18 as well. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's important to kind of know what happens in chapter 18. Unfortunately, chapter 18 doesn't really, I don't know, what it gets kind of the short shrift, and um, and that's going to be the case here too. But nonetheless, I do have a couple things to say about it in uh, transition to chapter 19. So first things first, last time we took a look at, you might say, uh, the unfaithful or the alternative bride, the other bride, the other woman, the prostitute or the harlot of Babylon sitting on the beast, and then at the end of chapter 17, the beast and the prostitute don't get along anymore, and they basically... Um, Want each other dead, and it's just we talked. I think last time ended with this notion of the kind of the self defeating notion of evil that it will implode, and that that's in the Lord's design as well. Chapter eighteen is, uh, I suppose, a transition to getting us to think about the true bride. Chapter eighteen tells us that uh, this false bride, this other woman, this Babylon. Well, its end is destruction. It will be done so, And that's the thing that I think I even mentioned again last time is that we know the end of the story right here, right now. Those seven angels that we've seen throughout Revelation, that kind of ministerial group, they're preaching and teaching about also the false church, the other woman, the other side of things, the pseudo-liturgies, the pseudo-baptism, the pseudo-supper. And chapter 18 is another example of this is also included in our, petition, in our prayers, in our preaching, in our petitions. And that is the other side is done already right here, right now. We know its end. Its end is destruction. Chapter 18, you can just kind of glance there with me. Verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It's a done deal. And yet, at this, so it's a very comforting in that way. What we know the end of the story on both sides. We know how we turn out. We look really good. Victory is certain for us. And then on the flip side, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. That is certain. And yet, what really intrigues me about chapter eighteen, this is I wanted to say this before we get to nineteen, and that is, watch carefully. If you read, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you maybe in your own time read chapter eighteen, you'll notice one thing that's really intriguing to me, and that is. The difference in tenses being used. Fallen, fallen sounds like past tense, right? Fallen, fallen, past tense. And yet by the time you get down to, uh, let's say, verse 8, what has happened, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day. She will be burned up with fire. All of a sudden we're getting some future tense in here. And as you keep going, guess what happens again? Uh, Verse 15, the merchants will stand far off, future. And then wait a minute, verse 17, all this has been laid waste, past tense. And then wait a minute, verse 22, 23, the sound will be heard in you no more, will be found in you no more, and so on. Um, what do I make of this? First thing is that this is the reality of the thing, and God who transcends time looks at it, and this is the deal. And yet at the same time, even as this is sure destruction, there is also this, even yet right now, come on out of her, my people, verse 4. Right now, pray, I thought it was a done deal. And yet the Lord says, come out of her, my people, that warning is issued There is yet still time, who knows the Lord may relent and bring us out, as in there's time, even right now, the Lord's not slow, as some count slowness, but wanting all to come to repentance, to come to the knowledge of the truth. So yet even now, even as its end is destruction, sure and certain, come out of her, my people. In fact, I think, we're not going to study this, but I think the kind of conversion— uh, that they're going for here, that this chapter is an admonishing is seen in verses seventeen and eighteen with these shipmasters. I think the shipmasters let take a look there, verse seventeen, the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all who trade on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city is like the great city? They throw dust on their heads and so on in a single hour. This has been done so. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. I think that these seafarers in verses what seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, this is a type, is representative of the kind of conversion that this chapter is calling for. I think this is a this is a kind of um, yeah, a type or an example for us of this is the kind of thing that. This word is bringing about the kind of realization of these shipmasters to say, you know, again, shipmasters, back in the day, um, the most advanced technologically speaking stuff you had is, I mean, the sea, your ships and so on. This is the advanced top of the line stuff. Shipmasters are the ones that are the CEOs of all this advanced industrial technological wherewithal. Those are the ones. So repentance is kind of is seen in that group even. Again, as a kind of representation of what the word can bring about throughout all times and places, in light of Babylon's sure and certain destruction. All right. Well, that's uh, just a real quick look at uh, chapter 18. Notice also how it ends here. I'm just looking at verses like 22, 23. What else? Is, what else is uh, will not be heard in you anymore? The voice of bridegroom and the bride. And that's a nice segue here to chapter 19, and that is we're going to get the marriage supper of the lamb and his bride, who has made herself ready. We'll talk about that in chapter 19. Uh, A doozy of a chapter, plenty to talk about, so let's jump in. Chapter 19 reads as follows. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Alleluia! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Alleluia! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So there we have the text of Revelation chapter 19. What a doozy. Uh, first things first, I kind of ended, you know, chapter 18. No more will be heard in you the voice of the bride and bridegroom. And what a contrast. That's put to shame in Babylon. And the flip side is, oh boy, will you hear the voice of bride and bridegroom in The new Jerusalem in uh, the true bride, the marriage uh, between the lamb and his bride, the church. John hears. Again, the significance of hearing in Revelation is huge. Um, He's still hearing. John is still hearing. You notice also um, he called out with a mighty voice also in chapter 18. So again, chapter 18, the false church, the false bride, John hears that. Now, again, John hears a sound, a voice, a great sound, a great crowd from heaven crying out, Alleluia. This is actually um, I just love this word. This is actually the only place in the New Testament where the word Alleluia occurs. And amazingly, it is all over the place. Verse 1 Verse 3 and 4, 6, and so on. It's all over the place. And I take that to be a kind of response. Um, The heavenly saints, you might say, um, respond to the preached word. The word goes forth, and what happens? A sound from heaven, hallelujah. When the divine service is up and running, we've talked about this before throughout Revelation, The saints, uh, we cue that up, and the saints, they will get in on that. It is responsive uh, between the one church that lives in both heaven and earth. Alleluia. This is a, I mean, you could say this is the Alleluia chorus of revelation. Salvation, glory, power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Um, He's avenged on her, the blood of his servants. So this is, I mean, this is very much a kind of, Back and forth that you see throughout revelation, this is are we in heaven? are we on earth? It's a both and and um they, basically all these these first five verses, four or five verses emphasizes back and forth praise the Lord, and that includes his judgments because by them uh the saints are made free, and so this is both the kind of the law and gospel situation here where God carries out his judgment and by that he also saves and the epitome of that of course is the cross of his son where he carries out the judgment and wrath on all sin on all times on his son and by that we are saved 24 elders the four living creatures everybody's in on this Um amen again this is the response when you hear amen in revelation think back and forth like we do in liturgy all the time. You get this back and forth. Amen. What you said. Yea, yea, it shall be so. Alleluia. Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. This is a kind of, yeah, again, a kind of liturgy. In some ways, we're coming full circle to what we saw in chapters four and five. In fact, this is the first time, in verse four, this is the first time we've seen these uh, four living creatures in a long time. In some ways, we're coming full circle then. This recalls for us what we first saw back in chapters 4 and 5, that divine throne room. And now here, it's we're still there. As that liturgy goes forth, as the Lord has his divine service even here right now, this is the reality, this victorious celebration where alleluias are going back and forth. This is reflected here every time we have this marriage supper, between the Lamb and his, and his Bride, and we'll talk about uh, that real soon here because we're already at our break. But stay tuned. We're going to talk about uh, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb and then also the rider on a white horse. plenty to do, but we'll, we'll tackle it here real soon uh,
1: right after this break. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcast, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the contribute page. And now, back to the podcast.
0: there folks we are back with our study of Revelation chapter 19 we talked about this hallelujah chorus you might say uh, between the one church that lives in both heaven and earth at the same time again this continues in verse 6 I love this because the word is I heard uh, as as a sound uh, of a great crowd and as a sound of many waters which is sounds like Christ, Um, the voice of many waters, chapter one, and as a sound of thunder, which sounds like, I don't know, the Holy Spirit, it makes me wonder if this is, I don't know, is there something Trinitarian going on here, saying alleluia, Um, this is just, I mean, many waters in chapter 17, that's many people on earth, and so you get the sense that, again, where are we? Are we in heaven? Are we on earth? Is this a Purposeful, kind of intentional blurring between the two. John in chapter and verse six now is like, I'm hearing this voice that sounds pretty grounded. Is it the church on? I just wonder if this is, you know, he started in verse one from heaven and then you go through here and it's kind of hard to say, well, who's, where is all this coming from? And I think it's kind of intentionally ambiguous. Sometimes it's up clearly in heaven, sometimes it, boy, it sounds like it's grounded on earth and then back and forth, back and forth. Again, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt. Give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I love the marriage imagery here. Of course, marriage is a very rich thing. From Genesis to Revelation in the Bible, um, God instituted marriage, he blessed marriage, he sanctified marriage, and we have an eternal marriage. So you can't get away from the deal of marriage. So often the prophets also talk about the relationship between God and his people with marriage imagery, the prophets especially. Um, The marriage and his lamb. Now this language of being prepared is awesome. The wife uh, has prepared herself and that language of being prepared is also very rich for what the Lord... You know, it might sound like, oh, you've done all this stuff for yourself. Made herself ready is the phrase in the ESV. Well, that word in Revelation is very rich, this prepared stuff. The Lord prepares a place for you. In the wilderness, we saw this, chapter 12. The Lord prepares a place by which the woman prepares herself. So you could say made herself ready in the sense of... Going and receiving, going to the place and receiving from the place that has been prepared for her in the wilderness. Part of that prep, by the way, is the very business of Babylon. God has also prepared a place for Babylon, you might say, on the flip side, prepared um, the destruction, prepared the judgments we saw this even. Uh, what is it? Prepared the way in the king's uh, the sixth um, the sixth bowl in chapter sixteen. Um, God's prepared also the judgments. God's also prepared the kind of preparation that Babylon served in His master plan. That is part of the bride. Uh, the preparations there involved uh, the trials and afflictions by means of the Babylon's. Throughout the church of all times and places, the Babylons in our lives, the kinds of uh, captivities, you might say, afflictions at the hands of of others, Um, part of that is included in this prep. All that was made uh, uh, making a a sort of what prep to make ready to conform to the image of that bridegroom uh, by whom we are saved. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. I love this. This is very baptismal, this clothing and garment, right? And uh, I love this language of clothing. And then also, of course, we're going to have the supper. So we have both baptism and the sacrament of the altar. And what does the church sing about? The church sings about the gifts given to the church. It was given her in order to clothe herself with fine linen, white and pure. Well, that linen came from, from Christ. Uh, what else? The supper. It was given to her to eat and to drink. Well, that's the Lord. It's not our supper. It's not our Passover lamb. It's the Lord's Passover. It's, it is the Lord's supper. That's why we call it that. And this brings into, this, this is huge for worship, by the way, our liturgy. This should reflect, we should reflect this. We should have hymnody that sings of the riches of word and sacrament, as we see here. And this also, I think, is related to this business of John falling down and worshiping. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, I think, so if you look at verses 9, we have this, The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are the ones who invited to the supper. Again, this is the word totally... Lord's Supper, this is the word used in 1 Corinthians 11. It's used several times in John 13, Last Supper. This this is the supper. Bless the one who's invited to this supper, called. It's a really pregnant word, too. Being called, gathered, enlightened, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He said to me, these are the true words of God. And then John falls at his feet to worship him. Okay, and he says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. Worship God. Now, Lots of discussion. Why did John mess up here? What happened? Well, I don't really think... First, I mean, one explanation is just, well, he just got caught up in the moment or whatever, and I think, I don't know if that's all that... I think mean, we can be more precise than that. I don't think you can just say he's caught up in the moment. There are many, many times, many, many moments in Revelation where John sees something absolutely extravagant and he doesn't fall down and worship any angel. I was thinking of chapter 10, for example, and the Well, just in 18, the glory filled the whole sky. You know, that kind of thing filled the... There's a lot going on here. Now, why would it be in this particular instance? Now, this is going to happen one more time in chapter 22. And so far as I can tell, I think... So this language, by the way, falling down at the feet to worship, I mean, that's what John did to the Son of Man in chapter 1. And there I take him to be representative of the church. I think John throughout this book is totally the church. Tells us a thing or two about the church, especially from an individual perspective, notice we just had the church singing at a more corporate level here. Let us rejoice and give Him glory. Verse seven, verse eight. It was granted to her to clothe herself. That's more the church corporate. Here, John, I think, stands for the church individual. And what happens? I think when, as I look at both instances in, in Revelation, where and I'll talk about this again in chapter twenty-two, where I look at both instances of John worshiping, what happens? A reference to both sacrament, here we had supper and clothing, and then word. These are the true words of God. What are we going to have in chapter 22? The tree of life, fruit and leaves for the healing of the nation, think nourishment and so on. And also, again, the word. I think that the worship of John is, yes, it's wrong and he's called out for it, but I think it's its own kind of testimony to how wonderful and profound And utterly incredible, these wonderful gifts of word and sacrament are. John worships in the context of word and sacrament gifts. In other words, we have to, I mean, as a church of all times, it is a kind of warning as well to be careful that the things are so good that we don't start worshiping, you know, we don't worship wood, we don't worship candles. We don't worship paper and ink and so on. We worship God. And so sometimes you can be so close to a thing and yet oh so far, (laughs) right? You can be right there. You can be oh so close and yet that one degree of separation is uh, of eternal significance. Oh so far away. And so we need to be careful about this. I mean, when it comes to the word, it was the serpent who just, I mean, who who worked with the word. What did God really say? You know, that kind of thing. And yet a little degree of separation there made all the difference. Was it C.S. Lewis, the greatest lie is the one closest to the truth, right? This kind of, you can be right there. And so we also have to guard in the same way in the sacraments that we're not turning the sacrament into something that it's not uh, been given to be or been instituted as. And so, I mean, we have to be careful here. What is, He said, take, eat. He said, take, eat. Okay, so that's what we've been given to do. Now, we can do all sorts of other things, and yet what he has he given, he has said, take, eat. That's what we are to do, right? You can be so close to a wonderful gift, and yet, oh, so far, if you're just, Right, if you're starting to take it in another direction again that one little degree of separation um, in this case John starts to worship this angel I mean again thinking of we don't worship the man in the office I love this pastor so much that it's all about this pastor and I love him and I adore him right <laughs> and I am just so enamored by him we worship God the pastor stands in the stead and by the command of Christ, and so on. So anyway, this is a thing, I, again, for the church of all times, uh, what we all we, what we need to be guarding against. But at the same time, again, this is its own kind of testimony to the profound nature of the gifts of word and sacrament among us. Finally, the writer on the white horse, oh my... Um, this one I referenced back in chapter 14 already when we had this like wine pressing business with the trampling and all that. And then it goes up to the level of the horse's bridle. I think these things go together. I think the rider on the white horse, this is about the spiritual warfare. I mean, we're still in the time of the church and this is imagery that uh, again testifies to that particular spiritual warfare we have a rider on a white horse his eyes the description here very clearly the son of man eyes like a flame of fire many diadems a name he's clothed in robe dipped in blood word of god we talked about this um, so it sounds a lot like how christ is described elsewhere in the book of revelation his weapon is what the word that's Where you'd usually have a sword, it is the word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of joint and between the joint of, of bone and marrow and so on. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I think this is totally the spiritual warfare we're in right now. And yet we are victorious. We follow the one on our horses. We follow the one who is on his horse leading the charge. And that is, uh, with this word by which we are saved, the one who is the word made flesh, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Again, this is why I take this um, to be connected to chapter 14. Um, And uh, we have here at the end a very great supper, the flesh of this, the flesh of that, flesh, flesh, flesh. Again, I think all the emphasis on flesh in this, is totally to evoke the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. I think either way you go in life, you're eating the flesh of Christ, or there's another flesh that uh, you'll be eating. That's We heard elsewhere, and if that's the case, then at the end of the day, you yourself will be consumed if you're consuming this pseudo-sacrament. And so you can either be a guest at the true sacrament, or you can be on the menu of the pseudo-sacrament. No way, uh, shape, or form in between those two. And I think that's reflected here um, as chapter 19 closes. It's also an illusion. Uh, In Ezekiel 39, you can take a look at that. All this eating of flesh talk is kind of picked up there, too. You can see... Um, Gog and Magog mentioned there. We'll talk more about that in chapter 20. But anyway, this just to recap, this rider on the white horse, this is exactly the spiritual warfare. But again, we are victorious. We know that right now. Holding to the word of God, it cannot be broken. And that is made certain because the one who rides on this white horse, trampling, uh, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath, of God is uh happening because he himself all this is true and certain because he himself has been trampled think at the end of chapter 14 for our sake and has given us a blood to consume that will give us life and has given us flesh for forgiveness and salvation great stuff chapter 19 of revelation wow that was quite a bit well we snuck 18 in there too didn't we but uh I think we made it through. Hey, tell others uh, about this podcast, if you would, so that they too can learn more about God's Word with us. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org and clicking on our contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian Gurman, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus, our Lord.